And one thing I want to encourage you is that all believers can rest in the following that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is reigning, that Jesus is uh, praying for you. Uh, Jesus is building his church and that Jesus is uh, preparing a place for you, that Jesus is sanctifying you. And lastly, that Jesus loves you. Amen. And so what a joy for us to gather once again in this first Sunday of 2021. Our Father, thanking you, Lord, for this day. And I pray, Father, that you would awaken us to your glory in this first Sunday of 2021. God, it is my prayer that you would impart new prayers, spontaneous uh, repentance in our hearts. Lord, that even a, an earnest desire to seek you in your word and to commune with you. God, not just in those short time, but Lord, even longer time, Lord. You've commanded us to pray at all times. And that Lord, when we pray that we would not give up, that we would keep on praying. God, we are praying for, in the midst of this pandemic, we pray, Father, that your will be done. We pray, dear Lord, for your mercy and for your grace for those who are going through with this virus, Lord. And I pray, Father, that they would cling to you for hope and for mercy, and that you're the great healer, and that you are our physicians, Father. And so, Lord, we Thank you for the time that you've given us. And dear Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts to worship you. Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray dear Lord, wherever your people are, as you are watching this, uh, this service, as we are worshiping together, Lord, I pray that they will stay focused, that they would remove any distractions, that this hour is simply yours. That we would humble ourselves, Lord, to meet with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts and our mind to, to have this time of worship. That we would seek you, Lord, with all of our hearts, soul, and mind. God, that we would behold the wonderful things out of your law. So, Father, I pray by your Spirit that you would guide us, fill us with understanding. May you grant fruit for, for those who are listening. God, that this, this, the, the preaching of your word will penetrate in their hearts, that you would speak to them. Oh, Lord, I give you praise for all these things. God, I pray that as we listen to the instruction of your word, God, fill us, open our eyes, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray for the working of your spirit in, in, in the hearts of your people. And we give you thanks. In the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. 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 If you could think with me for a moment. What's the most important question you, you have ever asked? It, it, it's been said that um, insightful people are not first people with the right answers. They are people who ask the right questions because you don't get to, to the right answers without asking the right questions. So perhaps uh, there could be no more important questions than the three questions um, that are asked and answered by Mark. The questions, who is Jesus? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? Mark is probably the earliest of the gospel as we turn our attention to the gospel according to Mark. And Mark answers these questions not so much in an abstract, theological, or even philosophical way, but in putting before us in a hard-hitting, uh, quick-paced style, the life and ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we focus on Mark, we will encounter a gospel that is fast-moving and in, in hard-hitting. It is the shortest, by far, of the four gospels. 
it, it is often noted as much for what it omits as what it includes. For example, in the book of Mark, there is no genealogy of Jesus like we find in Matthew and Luke. Uh, no miraculous birth uh, narrative. No mention of Bethlehem or shepherds. No visit of the wise man. No childhood at Nazareth. No story of Jesus visiting the temple as a boy. No growth in wisdom and stature uh, noted. So, so he puts in front of us again and again the person Jesus, the person Jesus, the person Jesus until it's impossible to be neutral. You have to respond to this Jesus. You, you, you have to respond to who he is. You have to respond to what he's done. You, you have to respond to what he says about you. You have to decide whether you will follow him. You have to face the reality of his cross. You can't be neutral and, and read uh, the gospel of Mark. I love the beautiful way he tells the story of Christ and how it confronts what we think about ourselves. It confronts your deepest needs. It confronts your deepest dreams. It confronts everything you would think about your world. How? By putting in front of you the person, the Lord Jesus. We know that everything we hold in our theology, everything we believe as Christians is rooted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is rooted in his historical work on earth. And so it is right for us to go back to that again and again. To march back to the Gospels and work our way through a Gospel again and again. Because without Jesus, without his work, all that we believe would be empty and worthless. What a way for us to start the beginning of the year thinking, considering the gospel, the work of Christ. You see, the author Mark weaves the servant theme throughout, the, throughout his book and presents the servant Jesus as an example to follow. The main verse from studying the book of Mark, I would have to pick uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 44 and 45. So if you open your Bible to Mark chapter 10, verse 44 and 45, Mark tells us this, And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as we study uh, Mark, we be ready for fast-paced, non-stop action. He, he open for God's uh, move into your life um, and be challenged to move into your world to serve. So the purpose of the gospel according to Mark is to present the person, work, and teachings of Jesus. The author, the early church was uh, unanimous uh, that a man named John Mark was the author of the gospel according to Mark. So John Mark was the son of a woman named Mary. Mary's home was in Jerusalem and was a meeting place for believers of the early church in, in the book of Acts chapter 12 verse 12. John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas, Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. And you will find that in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 25, to chapter 13, verse 5. But he left them um, at Perga and returned to Jerusalem in Acts, chapter 13, verse 13. So when Barnabas wanted Paul to take John Mark on the second missionary journey, Apostle Paul refused. In Acts chapter 15, verse 38 and 40, uh, you will see there that the, the resulting friction between Paul and Barnabas led to their separation. So it's important for us to consider who the author is in the gospel according to Mark. Mark seems to have targeted Roman believers. Okay? These are believers that the, um, John Mark was writing to. Particularly Gentiles, those who are not part of the Jewish heritage. Uh, this book was written between AD 55 and 65. 
And I want to point several things to you as we study the gospel according to Mark, um, the message of this book. The first thing I want us to see is this, Jesus Christ being the Son of God. The truth that Jesus, the man, is also God means that Jesus has authority to forgive sins and to change lives. In fact, he, he died in our place paying the penalty for our sins. So we can trust in Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. It also means that He is true in our authority. Those who know Christ as Savior must obey Him as Lord. Christ was fully man, but He was much more. He, he, he was and is fully God. The question is, do you know Him as Savior? Do you, do you follow Him as, as Lord? So Jesus Christ being the Son of God. And the second thing I want us to see, the message of the Gospel according to Mark, is that Jesus Christ being a servant. Those who claim Christ as Savior and Lord should follow His example by serving God and others. You see, real greatness in Christ's kingdom it is shown by service and sacrifice. Instead of being motivated by ambition or love or power or position, as is true with most people. We should do God's work because we love Him and His creation. So as we look at this and seeing Christ being servant, what does it mean for you to be a servant? So as, you studied, as we study this together, and the question that we have to ask, what does it mean for you to be a servant? What can you do to serve God today? To whom in your home, your neighborhood, your school, place of employment, or, or even our church, can, can you give a cup of water in His name? And being able to serve. And, and as you have been a Christian for all these years, you, you really have to see where you are when it comes to serving others for the sake of Christ. And the third thing I want us to see is discipleship. Do, do we even realize the cost of being His disciple? Following Jesus means uh, dying to self, obeying Him and serving others. And as you recall, Gabe did a, a great, a, a marvelous job of teaching us in the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. In regards to discipleship and following Christ, what kind of disciple are you? Also, you would see miracles in this book. The more convinced we become that Jesus is God, the more we will see His power and love. Christ's uh, mighty work shows us that He is able to save anyone, regardless of what He or she has done. His miracles of forgiveness bring healing, wholeness, and new life to all who trust Him. You see, nothing is too big or too difficult for Christ to, to handle. We can give Him all our needs and tell Him all of our problems. Are you struggling with doubts and fears? Trust Jesus. Are you hurting or suffering? Tell Jesus. Do you need a miracle in your life? Bring, uh, bring your request, your petition to, to Jesus. That's what it's all about. It is us being able to recognize who Christ is and what, he, what He's able to do. And the last thing I want us to see in the message of this book is evangelism. You see, Jesus crossed national, ra racial, social, uh, economic barriers to spread the gospel. He, his message of faith and forgiveness um, is for the whole world, not just for our church. Not just for our neighborhood, not just for our community, right? It's for the whole world. We, we must reach beyond our own people and needs to fulfill Christ's um, worldwide vision that people everywhere might hear this great message and be forgiven of their sins and receive eternal life. Who do you know that needs to hear about Christ? Who do you know? I mean, what keeps you from sharing the good news with your loved ones, with your co-workers, with your neighbors, with the stranger on the street? What can you do uh, 
to begin today to reach beyond your circle of Christian friends. That's a challenge we have, and that's something that, um, as a church, it is my prayer this year that we will be more active in this area of evangelism. As we have studied evangelism in the past and how we're really focusing and really sharing that to wherever we are, what more as a church that will be active in sharing and proclaiming the good news of Christ. So as we turn our attention to chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, the main idea of this passage is that the gospel is the good news that God has kept His promise to send a Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So as we begin in an exciting journey through this gospel, what is it that Mark, at the beginning, wants us to understand concerning the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? That is a question that we, we have to answer in this passage. It is important for us to tackle and see. So the first thing I want us to see is this. We can trust God to keep His promise. We can trust God to keep His promise. In verse 1, serves as the theme of the book and the introduction. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, as I send my messenger before your face, you will prepare your way. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So in verse 1, I want us to see and go back, the word beginning. You see, many commentators say the way this gospel begins alludes back to the way the Bible begins. If you recall, if you're doing your um, one-year Bible reading, if you have read Genesis chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, right? you're probably there in day 1 of your Bible reading. You'll see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in John chapter 1, verse 1, something new and exciting has occurred. It, it, it's, it's a new year. It's a new beginning. So there's a way in which Mark is saying, what I'm about to tell you, the story I'm about to tell you, the person I'm going to introduce to you, has as a fu fundamental implication as the creation of the world did. So you see, as God, as God in that moment creates the world out of nothing, right? In the beginning, right? It's so important for us when you turn your Bible to the book of Genesis and even John chapter 1. And how this relates to this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and, the, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Again, this is the same way. It, it, it's a spiritual creation that happens, recreated by Christ Jesus. This is God remaking His world through Christ. This is an awesome new beginning. This is, this is what the world has hungered for. This is what the world has needed. God is going to deal with sin. He is going to deal with the brokenness of the world. He's going to answer all the dilemmas that could be answered. The good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You see... This part, it existed in the mind of the Trinity, even as God fashioned the world, filled it with life, and called His creation good. I mean, stop for a moment and think about that. When you read the book of Mark, when you go back to the book of Genesis, and when, it come, when it comes to how God created the world, and God would show us how he would deal with sin. You see, God was not shocked by, by Adam's rebellion in the garden. The reign of sin and evil did not take the Creator by, by surprise. The, the Lord did not have to adopt His plan in creation to the subversion of Satan. He, he saw it all. Satan's sedition, Adam's rebellion, Cain's murder, right? My sin, your sin. See, God saw everything before the first moment of 
creation and he wove his plan of redemption into the fabric of history. While the gospel existed before creation, God began to accomplish the plan through the work of Jesus on earth. You see, God won't sit and allow his world to live darkened and damaged and deceived and seduced and broken by sin. He will intervene in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what a radical thought. So Mark links the appearance of the good news to the official beginning of the Messiah's public ministry. You see that? The beginning of the gospel. Here it means a message of good news, of joyful tidings. It, it speaks in the context of redemptive history of the coming Savior who would provide salvation promised by the prophetic word. The good news is a person. He is the long-awaited Messiah, God in human flesh, whose name is Jesus. You see, the time of God's salvation has, has arrived. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Greek name for the Hebrew Joshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. It, it means the anointed one. Initially a title, it would become a common part of the name of our Lord. Son of God is a crucial and critical title for the promised deliverer. It takes Christology to a higher level. The fact is, is as one looks at the titles of Jesus in Mark, he, you, you and I cannot avoid the, the, this conclusion that Jesus is indeed God. The title Son of God, interestingly, for strategic confessions in particular, in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, in chapter 15, verse 39, framed the unfolding revelation and identity of Jesus in this gospel. In Mark chapter 1, Mark's assertion, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, listen to Peter's confession in, Acts, in Mark 8, verse 29. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And, and, must, and Jesus Christ's affirmation by the nation. Again, the high priest asked him in, in Mark chapter 14, verse 61 and 62, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In Mark chapter 15, verse 39, a Roman, a, a, a Gentile soldier's recognition. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed, out, breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. You see, there's hope for us because God's ultimate answer is not to give us a set of principles, not to give us wise philosophy, not to give us a moral code. His ultimate answer is to give us himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God's greatest gift to us is God. Right? We are reminded once again, as we look at this, Christ being the Son of God, being the good news of Christ, the gospel, when you really look at that together, you're reminded of what? The Christmas message. And the very reason why Christ was born was to die for our sins. That is the good news. And as we have seen in the book of Matthew, in the book of Luke, in what that really looks like for us, and be reminded over and over the birth and the death of our Savior Jesus Christ. One thing I need us to consider is this. I, I, I know it's true of me. These words at times become all too familiar. I love what B.B. Warfield writes, that one of the dangers of theological education is that the radical glories of the gospel just become so familiar to you that you lose your sense of awe. 
And in losing your sense of awe, you lose your thankfulness. In losing your thankfulness, you lose your worship. In losing your worship, you're just a step from idolatry. Powerful statement from B.B. Warfield. The question is, where are you? Have you lost your awe? Have you lost your awe of worship of who God is? You see, God kept His word to send the Messiah. In verses 2 and 4, God kept His word to send His forerunner. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, the scripture tells us this, Behold, I send an angel, a messenger before you, to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert of a highway for our God. This is the only place where Mark introduces an Old Testament quotation in this matter. See, hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had predicted that John the Baptist and Jesus would come. God promised Isaiah that a Redeemer would come to Israel and that a messenger calling in the wilderness would prepare the way for him. You see, Isaiah's word, words comforted many people as they looked forward to the Messiah. Knowing that God keeps His promises can comfort you and I. As you read, as we study the book of Mark, Realize that it is more than just a story. It is a part of God's word. In it, God is revealing to you his plans for human history. In verses 4 through 8, and we see here, Joshua, uh, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In all the country of Judea, in all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than an eye, the, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the second point that I want us to see is that we can trust God to send his preachers. We can trust God to send his preachers. The sending of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, was a, a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, signaling a turning point, a new day in redemptive history. Now think about this. This is the one that God had raised up to begin to point up to Jesus Christ the Son of God, who is now alive and, and well on earth and beginning his uh, public ministry. Think about it. Th this is a wild and vague prophet out in the wilderness. I mean, would you have thought that if there was going to be a messenger, it, it, it would have been the chief priest. It would have been a prominent Pharisee. Or it, it would have been an estimated uh, scribe. Or it would have been a Sadducee. And notice the movement, the movement of people out of Jerusalem, away from the temple, out to the wilderness to hear this message of repentance, this message of confession of sin and forgiveness. See, you need to understand again how radical this is. There is, in the ministry of John the Baptist, a stinging indictment of the religious order of the day. That what had taken over was a deadening externalism. Maybe we could say this, that God has left the building. And so God raises someone outside of the religious system of the day. Outside of its deadening externalism. Outside of its spiritual pride to call people once again to what every human being needs to do. Confess 
how deep their sin is and to seek the one thing that you cannot earn, forgiveness. So in verse 4, we see here in verse 4 and 5, like John, we should be faithful. We should be faithful. We see here he's preaching a baptism of repentance. John's preaching unsettled natural born Jews. He proclaimed that sin has separated them from God. He urged Jews to, to approach the Lord like Gentiles, to repent of their sins and to mark the, the restart of their relationship with God by submitting to a proselyte's baptism. So make no mistake, however, the symbol of baptism cannot save sinners any more than circumcision can save a Jew. Like circumcision, baptism is supposed to be an outward symbol of one's inner devotion to God. And you would see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 25 through 29. So God raises up a prophet quite apart from the formal religious system of the day to call people to what? To repentance, to call people to confession and the seeking of forgiveness. Let me give you a, a part of application in this, is that we can't read this account without hearing its warning. Let's be honest. The externalism is, is not dead. I would be so bold as to propose that perhaps that externalism still exists even in the confines of our church at Resolve Bible Church. Oh, we can sing with such enthusiasm and such excitement. Amazing grace, how, how, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And yet, be an, un, be an ungracious father, an ungracious husband. We, we can explain a theology of, of the love of God, yet live selfish, me-oriented, unloving lives. Stepping over human need and not being bothered at all. We, we can talk about the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account in that very week. Look at internet pornography and, and, and rated our movies. And it doesn't bother us. We can talk about reconciliation to God and be willing to live in broken relationships with brothers and sisters. We, we can talk about the sovereignty of God and we can um, explain that doctrine like few people can. But we try to move ourselves into control of situations and circumstances and we worry all the time. See, you can talk about how God is in control and yet you fill yourself with anxiety and worry about things. You're not really surrendering all those things to, to a faithful and gracious and merciful and faithful God. There's, there's a problem to that. You see, the heart of our faith must not be our theological knowledge must not be external Christian habits. See, the heart of our faith, it must be a heart that loves and worships the Lord Jesus and is ruled by Him in all the, all the situations, in all of the relationships of our daily lives. Could it be that God would say to, to some of us, enough of your hymns, enough of your worship, enough of your offerings, enough of your buying of another a Christian book, enough of your posting on social media. They are an abomination to me because you honor me with your lips, but your heart is what? Far from me. It is a radical picture here of God turning his back on that system. That system will never lead to redemption because that system is not dependent on God. See, there's there is such a thing as Christless Christianity, and it can be that your theological knowledge and your Christian habits actually hide and promote personal sin because it's not habits of the heart and it is not a theology of the heart. That's something that you and I need to consider. And where you are, if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord. That you that, that stop promoting, stop hiding sin, kill sin, 
destroy sin. Because those habits of the heart is not a theology of the heart. You see, one thing that you and I need to consider here is, is this uh, message of repentance. A turning in radical change resulting in the forgiveness of sins. Repentance means doing a, a about face, a 180 degree turn from the kind of self-centeredness that leads to wrong actions such as lying, uh, cheating, stealing, gossiping, taking revenge, abusing and indulging, indulging in sexual immorality. A person who repents stops rebelling and begins following God's way of living prescribed in His Holy Word. The first step in turning to God is to admit your sin, as John urged. Then God will receive you and help you live the way He wants. Remember that only God can, can remove, can get rid of sin in your life. Only God can do that. You, you must humble yourself. And that's something that we have seen in the book of 1 John, over and over and how God can deliver us and deliver you from your sin in your life. See, God does not expect us to clean up ourselves before we come to Him. Just go to God. He understands. He, he knows your sin, the filthiness of your heart. So one thing that we see here in verse 5, people came from everywhere to hear Him. Even Jerusalem, rich and poor, rural and urban, they responded by repenting, turning from sin, confessing that they were acknowledging their sin, and being baptized, and an outward sign of humility, giving evidence of the inward change of their heart. So the summary of John's message, the time is now to get right with God. The time is now to get right with God. Don't wait tomorrow. Don't wait later. Now is the time of salvation. The time is now to get right with God. I'm not sure where you are in your walk with God. If, even if you even have a personal relationship with God. I want to tell you that the time is now to get right with God. You see, the purpose of John's message of preaching was to prepare people to accept Jesus as God's Son. See, when, when, when John challenged the people to confess sin individually, he signaled the start of a new way to relate to God. It's change needed in your life before you can hear and understand God, Jesus' message. You have to admit that you need forgiveness before you can accept it. To prepare to receive Christ, repent. Denounce the world's dead-end attractions, their sinful temptations and, and harmful attitudes. In verses 6 through 8, like John, we need to be humble. And there are three observations elsewhere in Scripture are worth noting if you Turn your Bible to, to the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses uh, 7 through 15. Matthew 11, verses 7 through 15. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out? To see a man dressed in soft clothing, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. 
For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to that. And then in John chapter 3, verse 30, and John said, He must increase, but I must decrease. In John chapter 10, verse 41, Then many came to him and said, John performed no miracles, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. See, Mark helps us take a straight and honest look at this man. Not only does he appear unusual by today's standard, he, he was unusual by the standards of his own day. He had no credentials. He had, no, he had not studied in a formal school. He had not sat at the feet of the Pharisees or rabbis. And he wore funny clothes and he ate weird food. And early in life, he moved to the desert. He was humble in appearance. He, he wore a camel-haired garment with a leather belt. Sounds like Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. He lived in the desert. That was his home. And he was humble in his diet. He ate locusts, a, a clean animal, for Leviticus 11, chapter 11, verse 22. And he ate honey. And his message is in verse 7. A greater than I is coming. And he was humble in his message. He is so great, I am not worthy to do what only a Gentile slave would do in verse 7. You see, John recognized that his deeds counted for nothing towards salvation in speaking of one mightier. So John did not have physical strength in mind. He, he spoke of spiritual power and moral uh, might. See, compared to this man, the greatest servant of God up to that time, saw his moral might as insufficient to qualify him for the lowest form of service than known. The least of household slaves removed shoes and washed feet. And, and that's what it looks like in the lowest form. In verse 8, it says, My baptism is outward with water, a symbol. Yet Jesus Christ's baptism is inward with water, the, the real thing. It says, The one who is coming is my, mightier than I am. The one who is um, coming is w more worthy than I am. The one who is coming is more powerful than I am. It says, I have touched your body with water. Jesus will touch your soul with the Holy Spirit. And John says, I know who I am in God's plan. I know who it is in God's plan too. So don't ever confuse about this. So John knows what he is there for. It is not about him. It is not his story. It is not his moment. This is not John's moment. This is Christ's moment. This is Christ's time. And then he says something glorious. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John's baptism was a preparation. It was a sign of what was to come. But it was limited to a water baptism. And he said, the one who comes will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying this one will deal with the ultimate damage of sin. And what does sin bring? Sin brings death. And this one, by his spirit, will give life to you and I. And John is saying, look, that's something I cannot give. In conclusion, you see this introduction to the ministry of Christ is like a great knife that slices its way through the middle of humanity. Because if you believe these words, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Mighty One, the Savior who will give you new life, it changes you and everything about your life. It becomes the single most important thought and pursuit of your existence. It, it defines everything you think about you, everything you think about your world, everything you think about others. How could you believe such a thing? Right? I, I would ask you this evening, as you're watching and listening,
I would ask you this, this, these following questions. What are you doing with Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Him? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Tomorrow is not promise. Yes, we're here in our first Sunday of 2021. When you and I look and think about and consider where we are in our faith, tomorrow is not promise. Have you surrendered? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you trusted Him? Is He your Lord and Savior? One thing I want to encourage you is don't, don't wait to seek the Lord. Seek His companionship now. Seek His forgiveness now. Seek His love and righteousness now. Seek His comfort now. Seek God's peace now. But if you're a believer, do you live by faith in Him? Does that belief in Jesus the Christ Shape the way you think about your marriage and the way you think about parenting and, and the way you think about your life at your school, the way you think about your job. Do, do you come with a deep sense of need, with the enthusiasm of worship? Or could it be that you've lost your awe and you need to confess that it has all become too familiar, too commonplace? That your life maybe isn't driven by worship of Jesus as it should be. May God help us to celebrate the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And may that celebration not just be with a theology that we embrace and with hymns that we sing, but with every word and thought and desire and decision of our lives. What a way for us to start this year truly knowing that you know Christ as your Savior and Lord. And that if you are a Christian, that you have confessed, that you have followed, that yes, yes, I admit that Jesus is my Lord, but I have not been living for Him. That this is too familiar for me, that, that all that you're talking about it is, is gone. Perhaps we need to refocus. Perhaps you need to go back to the scripture and really examine your heart. Right? Even pondering and reading the word of God. Do you have that joy? Do you have that excitement of waking up in the morning and looking forward of being in his word? That should cost you That should cause you joy, because that's your desire. That's what you're longing for. But if not, take some time today to repent. Repent of your complacency of being in His Word, being in prayer, being in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. I know we can't meet in person, but there's a way for us to text our our, our, our sisters and brothers, we can, we, we can call them. We can pray together over the phone. But if you do not know Christ as your Savior and Lord, may this be a day for you, wherever you are, that you, that you would confess, that you would repent of your sins. And that you would acknowledge Christ as your Savior and Lord before it's too late. May you do that today. And as we look into this and consider what God has done for us, may you worship Him, seeing Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That is the gospel, that is the good news, that is something for us to get excited about and to hope for and to long for. May Christ be magnified 
in our time together this year. Join me, join me in prayer as we prepare our time and as we transition for communion. If, if you are a believer, um, I take some time to uh, grab the, uh, the elements, the bread and the wine, if you have it available with you. Join us. Uh, this is not something that is normal. Um, I prefer that we do this in person, but this is what we have for now. So it is my desire and it is prayer that wherever you are, that you would take time. If you know Christ, your Savior and Lord, again, this elements, this Lord's Supper, this celebration and communion are for the believers only. If you have confessed your sin before God. So I want to do that to you and, uh, and lead us in prayer as we... Um, listen to this song and then we will um, celebrate together in communion. Thank you, Father, for this powerful beginning of this beautiful gospel. I pray, Father, that it may unsettle us, may it give us a lens into the struggles of our own hearts, may it renew us in our belief, in our celebration, in worship. Oh God, I pray that you would remind us of this truth, the importance of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh God, even as we come and, and come to the Lord's table, I pray God as we listen to this song and, and commune with you, and Lord, that we would do this in remembrance of you. God, I pray that we would humble ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper. In the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.